there's been the Church of Beyonce, you know, at, at, in that Catholic church, in that cathedral in San Francisco. They've been getting together and singing I'm a Survivor, Beyonce anthems, and it's been bringing LGBTQ folks, women and, women and people of color together, all in a Catholic cathedral, right, singing part of this tradition, singing that I've been down so goddamn long it looks like up to me. And so just, just to, you know, a, a loving hat tip and shout out to our, our tradition, like all of ours, you know, like forged in suffering and forged in confusion. And we're all, we've all been strangers in a strange land, you know, and that, that somehow in the testifying of the being dropped to our knees, but rising up singing, you know, like that feels like our shared legacy. And if we can dust that shit off and, and, sh and, and, and re-anoint, and reacquaint in a sort of groove and reconciliation committee, you know, like sweat our prayers, that there's something there. Yeah, I, I can, I can totally, uh, I can totally vibe with that. I mean, for me, that, that current of history is, is, is really, really important. It's a, it's an orienting mythopoetic uh, echo chamber of, yeah of tales that are only one step away from the more hardcore historical stories you want to tell about, you know, racism and subjugation and all of the stuff. It's all there too. It's not, so it's not a panacea. And yet there, there's this kind of these currents in it, this, this, these, um, opportunities for encounter and for, uh, affirmation in the midst of suffering an acknowledgement of suffering that it's so far away from the kind of the pop consumer world of happy, fluffy pastel, yeah. you know, self, you know, all, and it, it comes back to suffering. And that's one more thing I guess I yes, would say about, it does. about the dead um, is the dead. And that if you're paying attention, and I, I've, I've, I've laid this line on a few dentists and they didn't really know what I was talking about. So it's like, I, there's clearly a way to be just a more, superficial hedonistic deadhead and that's fine but i'm like if you're really paying attention then you know that the reason you don't know is not just that because the the light is unclear or because you didn't get the full download or whatever the other kinds of reasons you might say the reason you don't know is because you're going to die and nobody is going to wrap their heads around death you can't do it it's impossible you can't conceive of your own death you don't know what it means. Any religious person who tells you, well, this has what happens when you die. When you die, you go into this other. No. Well, how do you know? You don't know. <laughs> nobody knows. So the nobody knows around death is a very stern liberator. It liberates you from bullshit. It liberates you from the need or belief that you can ultimately know. Mm -hmm. And it also brings you back to the collective celebration of here we are you know, on this darkling plane, and rather than fighting like confused armies, let's dance. Yes. You know? Yes, it's that, oh, that Alice Walker line of like, hard times call for furious dancing. Today's talk is with Eric Davis, a futurist, a scholar of comparative religion, a mythologist, a, a punk rock anarchist, uh, literary phenomenon and one of the sharpest minds uh, I think I've ever encountered. I've, I've loved 
Eric's work going way back to one of his original works, Technosis, uh, all the way to his most recent High Weirdness, which was actually the popular version of his PhD dissertation on Robert Anton Wilson, Philip K. Dick, and Terence McKenna. He was basically talking about how strange things got in the 1970s, and he wasn't just looking into their worlds like a lot of biographers and other folks have done before. He went way under the hood and really made sense of the realms and the domains that these guys were playing in from a kind of sophisticated mythopoetic ontological perspective, which is just a fancy ass way for saying he mapped the misto. So my conversation with Eric was an absolute blast. It could have been twice as long. Uh, we started anywhere and went everywhere from John Winthrop and the city on the hill to the mystic Gnostic nature of American spirituality. The first and second great awakenings, which happened in the 17th and 18th centuries. The third great awakening, which was arguably the hippies and the age of Aquarius, all the way into Burning Man culture, grateful dead societies, ecstatic communities, you name it, <laughs> chaos magic, Discordian, um, you, you know, <laughs> the, the range of how he thinks and the depth, rigor, and playfulness with which he approaches otherwise totally arcane subjects is, I think, you know, he, he's, he's on one hand for me as far as just brilliant thinkers to pay attention to. So if you are curious on all things countercultural, and all things emergent, uh, jump into this one because Eric is an absolute delight to riff with, uh, to listen to, and to learn from. Well, Eric Davis, uh, thank you for joining us on Homegrown Humans and, and welcome to the conversation. Um, I'm delighted to have you, always fun to riff and chat and pick your vast and curious brain. So th thanks, for, thanks for joining us. That's uh, great to be here. Absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, mate, I mean, you're one of the one of the probably few and best folks I could possibly think of to want to explore this notion, um, especially these days, as, as in America, we've sort of feel somewhat adrift and potentially even arguably in a crisis of faith, a crisis of direction um, to really kind of pause and explore what is unique about the American experiment. I mean, Harold Bloom at Yale uh, you know, wrote a couple of books that I remember loving and, and reading back in school. One was literally called The American Religion, and his other was Omens of Millennium. Uh, and I remember them both being so vividly uh, about what a wonderful, weird, and wildly wacky thing that spirituality is and has always been in America you know, from the 17th century all the way to the 21st and everywhere in between, um, from the, you know, outcasts and misfits that, that hopped on boats and were either chased out of where they lived or, or opted out of where they lived and populated this mess. And, and, and he said something um, fascinating where he said, he said, America, you know, is and always has been a Gnostic nation, um, but it's forgotten that fact. And that it is in this grand sort of paradox, this irony, uh, that it is a, a, a nation whose spirituality is all about a deep Gnostic remembering, and that it has forgotten that, that it's, that's its essential nature. So with that as just a tee up, I'd love to just hear, you know, any of your kind of thoughts on this uniquely American spirituality. I know you've been tracking it for decades. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm so glad you, you, you started with Bloom, who was sort of my introduction to 
a lot of these issues too at at Yale, and uh, particularly those books. And it's you know interesting to note that at the point at the time when when Bloom wrote the American Religion, which is where he makes the main argument about the kind of Gnostic character of American religion, there's an as already an enormous literature on American religion. I mean, American religion is so fascinating, so multidimensional. Uh, so rich with novelty and tension and, you know, all of the kind of democratic experiment of America expressed and it's the country's unique relationship to religion in terms of its founding documents and et cetera, et cetera. So there's already this enormous religion discourse around America and, uh, uh, or I should say more, you know, enormous discourse on American religion and Bloom comes along and does this, argument about the Gnostic character of American religion. And it pisses everybody off because it's like, what is he talking about? He's some literary critic. He's not an American religion scholar. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And yet his argument, for me anyway, clarified, focused the beam and made us look at something that keeps coming up over and over again. So it's a remarkable book. You know, it's a remarkable vision and a, and a, and a fun one to read as well. And some of the resistance has to do, and I think we should stay with it a, a little bit longer just to go, what does it mean to say, what does it mean to use the word Gnostic in this context? You have to, to do that, you need to use this very ambiguous word. Again, if we look at sort of more traditional scholars right now, or, you know, s s scholars of Gnosticism, some of them argue that we can't even use the word. What does it even mean? Who are the Gnostics? What is a Gnostic tendency? And you find that the term has been used over and over again to do different kinds of things in different situations. That said, yes. I think, uh, you know, um, uh, Bloom did a re really great job of finding a way of understanding Gnosis that was both literary and poetic and religious and spiritual. And it's that nexus that makes it so fresh. So for him, uh, some of the great Gnostics in America are Walt Whitman and mm -hmm. Emerson and Wallace Stevens because of the way that they dealt with the problem. And this is the key point, And then we can I'll stop kind of nattering on. Uh, the key point is the sense of originality, that there is something in the self that is that is sort of before creation. And that if you get in touch with that, then you are both sort of more directly connected to source and you're capable of creating something new. You're actually doing something new rather than just repeating the kind of historical forces all along. And this is this is rooted in Bloom's own sort of, you know, melancholic metaphysics. It's, you know, he's not an <laughs> exuberant religious man by any means. He's one of these you know, American Jews who's burdened by the Holocaust and has, has no belief in the goodness of history. And yet he's held out this space, partly through his reading of poetry in particular, for a kind of connection with this aboriginal, deeper than mere creation spark in the self. And so from that perspective, his own perspective, which is also a literary perspective, he then looks out and sees traces of this throughout American religion. And I still think it's one of the best ways to pluck out what is distinct and both 
marvelous and threatening about American religion. Yeah, and, and let's actually take a moment here because I mean this is an, this is an unexpected. I I, I had forgotten and, uh, that your paws had crossed at Yale, so that's even that's even cooler. And I'd love to get to your your uh, latest chapter at Rice as well because that's a whole other very interesting, you know, community of practice around all things esoteric and, and weird. <laughs> but um, just just for any you know listeners and viewers that might not quite have their their footing in this conversation, um, just briefly, just tell us a little. Who Harold Bloom is, and then and then also any kind of his role in the the pantheon of, of thought of the twentieth century thought, but then also um, what is this American religion we're talking about? Like I mean, and, right. and, you know, feel free to just kind of cover it from the Puritans and Winthrop and you know John Winthrop and his famous City on the Hill that Reagan resurrects you know to great effect later you know all the way through Quakers and Shakers and I think Bloom does a, a fascinating job with contextualizing Mormons mm -hmm. you know in their in their non neutered state in all of mm -hmm. their angelology and, and wackiness and 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 deep you know utterly original mysticism mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah that we don't get so so just yeah. walk us through that first. Sure. So, so Harold Bloom is, you know, one of the leading literary critics, uh, or was one of the le leading re literary critics um, in America, and he uh, was—I guess you'd call him a bit of a conservative in the sense that he was, while he drew some things from postmodernism and poststructuralism, he wasn't interested in uh, what a lot of literary historians are or literary critics are doing today, which is to kind of see literature as a battleground of power where you look at it in terms of political power identity politics race da, da, da. he's interested in some of those questions but he he wants he's he's a romantic of the old school in the sense that he wants to hold out the possibility that great literature and he had no problem saying that there is great literature and then there's a lot of literature that's not so great and there's a huge amount of schlock including things that other people think are great so he had no problem with making that kind of claim, but what he was trying to leave space for is a kind of, you know, you could think of it as a kind of spirituality since we're talking in those terms. He wouldn't put it in those terms necessarily, but definitely in a, a kind of deep encounter with the imagination and with the resources of the soul. And so from that perspective, he did both very technical literary work and then increasingly became a more popular figure. Um, and, and again, sort of a conservative in the sense that he's interested in the classics and a lot of the great books and he thinks they're great and better than the other things that people want to replace them with. But it's wrong to see him as just a kind of fuddy-duddy defender of, of dead white men. Um, instead, he's, he's a more interesting kind of tricksy figure precisely because that he has more than an intellectual investment ultimately though he was a great intellectual he had a he had a, a photographic memory he could just you know oh, recite thing i mean he was just a kind of a monster in in that <laughs> sense um but he always had this sort of again a kind of melancholic spirituality that that held out the possibility that there was something in romanticism that is true even if we can critique it, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the way he kind of then he goes through and looks at looks at America. So what are we talking about when we're talking about American religion? I mean, there's so many uh, varieties. And I think the main point that he's trying to say by by saying that um, America is a Gnostic country 
is that whether or not you're an individual, like, a, you know, we think about the difference between spirituality and religion is that religion is a collective enterprise. It's a com communal enterprise and that spirituality is maybe more of a personal thing, even though there's a, you know, a whole collectives of spiritual people, it's more about your own individual path. That's sort of a simple way of talking about it, but it's worthwhile. Mm -hmm. And in general, people look at the history of American religion and they look at it in terms of these big collectives, in terms of the Puritans. So how did the Puritans come and what do they do here? And then how did the Methodists come in and how did that deal with America's, you know, um, a cultural situation and you know why did you know the baptists meet the african-american tradition in a way that the puritan tradition doesn't mm -hmm. and so you start you start telling the history of the nation through these large blocks um within that uh for example there's the a, a great emphasis on what they called the great awakenings and these were revivalist movements uh largely centered in, in in new york and new england uh first in the late 18th century and then in the uh early mid 19th century and these were like extraordinary upwellings of uh altered states as well as religious conversion and so here you see something interesting happening which is that even if you can talk about the collective history of different sects different protestant sects different group identities, different, you know, um, uh, uh, religions in that broad sense, there's this thread of the individual that runs through it. And that's what's important to, to, to Bloom. Is and, that, and, and the experiential too, right? I mean, there's that exactly. sense that... And, I and they're related. You know, that's the yeah. thing. Is when, you're, when you're talking about an individual experience, that's where the individual comes forward, not as a single self in the sense of just being an ego, but rather that this, the individual is a kind of locus point for an experiential intensity. And for and here's a great example of it. This is, this is you know, again, other people who deal with American religion hated this argument, but Bloom would go, look, let's just take standard evangelical American Christians, like middle of the road, hardcore, fundamentalists or not, doesn't really matter, but they're evangelists. And so on the one level, you go, these are precisely not Gnostics. You know, in the history of of Christianity, Gnosticism is always seen as a heresy. That's the unorthodox, the, the heretics, the, the, the Satanists, whatever, the, the people who are not being true Christians. So if you take very middle-of-the-road American Christians, people say they're the last things from Gnostics. Sort but of the doctrine, doctrinal fundamentalists, the right, ones who say it is what it is and I'm told. Yeah. Exactly. And they'll say, and he'll go, well, yeah, they got those doctrines. Yeah, they have those, those positions. But if you really listen to them, what do you hear? You hear this idea of being in touch personally with Jesus. Yes. yes. Personal connection with the Holy Spirit, with knowing God as your friend, your buddy, your connected. And he's like, that is what I'm talking about. That is that Gnostic spirit. It's not just a position of orthodoxy. It's also an experiential location yeah. where I have as an individual, a direct relationship to this kind of profound source. Yeah. And that yeah. kind of feeling is what you see again, also with the, the great awakenings. There, it's all about individual religious experience. It's all about yeah, your your own personal Jesus, right? And 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 I mean, now we we've just we just kind of you you've you've name checked uh, the Great Awakenings, but again, for for folks that aren't deeply familiar with them, um, let, let's just unpack it because I mean, Cane Ridge in Kentucky is a, is a phenomenal example. I mean, I was actually I I was at um, 
Burning Man giving a TED talk at one of their TEDx events and actually laid out the parallels of Cane Ridge, Kentucky, because I mean, it was literally even in August, it was the same time, it was the end of the summer. At that point, it was at the furthest western boundary of the country, which is similar to Black Rock City. Um, and the idea that the preachers were up on scaffolding and chanting people into frenzies, not, like, not unlike DJs at big sound camps, the fact that there was, you know, moonshine and music and fornication. And I mean, this was like the Woodstock of 1803 or 1802, whatever it was, right? So, so just, I mean, let folks know just a little about what that, you know, what was, what is that movement? What are these awakening movements? And, and if those, if the first two, right, were 18th and early 19th centuries, I've never seen anybody definitively or successfully pin the third. There have been a lot of efforts and false starts, but it's never quite become canon. So wh what do you see as where we are now on the brink of, you know, are, are we yeah. on the verge of a third? Is there, or is this the fifth or the seventh? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I think the main, the main point to take away from the historical Great Awakenings was just again the the central role of religious experience. And I wanted to say a little bit more about that category. And again, this sounds maybe a little bit like overly scholarly, but it's it's really important which is one of the arguments people make about why religious experience becomes so important for the 19th and 20th centuries in our era today. It has to do with the way religion used to be pervasive. Everything was under religion in the Middle Ages. It's all religious or not religious because it's all religious. So, but then as modernity rolls along and science and reason start to disenchant the world from its religious stories, suddenly it becomes clear that, wait, if we're trying to, to ground religion in the objective structure of the world, we're, we're fighting a losing battle. Because we can say, well, the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old, and then the geologists go, well, it's a little older than that. And here I can show you how, and et cetera, et cetera, with evolution and dinosaurs and and so there's a kind of recognition among people who are invested in religion, even particularly theologians, that, uh-oh, if we try to ground this in the objective world, we're, we're toast. But if we ground it in the subjective world, in the world of feeling, in the world of experience, well, you can't touch that because that's what people are actually, you know, they know that. They're having those experiences. So, so wait, are you saying that at some point in the evolution of American religion, and I think obviously the number of people that define themselves as spiritual but not religious is vast at this point, as you know, Pew and other, other researchers have found. So I'd love you to tease apart, because I, I, I'm hearing you use the word religion and religiosity, but like, again, you know, like, let, let's, uh, I'd love to understand how you pass them. Um, but then are you suggesting that at some point, wherever you, wherever you put the pin, probably in 19th century, you know, emergence of Victorian science, natural history, et cetera, the response to Darwin effectively, was there a, is there a paper trail of mm -hmm. that kind of conversation? Like people, yeah, like, like ministers, theologians actually going, oh shit, man, we're, we're, it's the high watermark. We're losing our, we're losing our unilateral authority. Let's carve out the interiority of the congregation because no one, you know, they can't measure it. Yeah, yeah. There's a way you can show how the the category of religious experience from the early early 19th century develops through theologians over time until it flowers in the great book on 
you know, Religion in America, which is William James's book on the varieties of religious experience. So what James is trying to do, writing around 1900, is to both reflect on the Great Awakenings and the role of experience and altered states. And he's, he's interested in altered states. He's interested in different psychologies. He's interested in positive healing, basically new age kinds of ideas. And he's interested in the, the feelings of, of, of dread and despair. And he's interested in mystical experiences, some kind of ineffable, direct, noetic encounter. And he's interested he's in He's another melancholy romantic, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Another melancholy romantic. And uh, so, so, so that's why it's really important to put the idea of religious experience a bit into context, because it, it, it gives us a sense of why it becomes so important and why it becomes so important for people and even people today who can go, yeah, you can tell, tell me everything you want to say not just about the external world, but also about neurology and sociobiology and evolutionary psychology and all the things that rationalists use to discount religious experience and say, yeah, you can tell me all that stuff, but I know what I experienced. So that kind of like, I still have a place for religion or the spiritual, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, to make a mark directly on me that none of your disenchantment can take away. And in a way, that's a, you know, that goes right into the beatniks and goes right into psychedelia. It doesn't have to be just the counterculture by any means, but the counterculture in that way is conservative. It's just figuring out other ways to explore other kinds of religious experience that produce new cultural moments. But the idea of the essential Gnosticism has always felt to me like direct experiential awakening and therefore that's what gets us to Whitman and Emerson and the others because Whitman and Emerson aren't subscribing to the doctrine of historical Gnostics of the first to third centuries they are aspiring to the initiatory experience is that fair to say does that track with yeah I, I would say, say I mean I think it actually I mean to, again it, I'm going to take a, a little bit of a scholarly detour through the past but I but I believe that it will illuminate this and actually be, will be my attempt to for the day to answer this problem of what we do now. So when scholars look at these currents of Gnosticism in the ancient world, one way of looking at them, and not everybody agrees with this, but this was one of the classic ways of looking at it, is there's really kind of two currents, both of which emphasize mystical experience or experiences of intense interiority with some kind of magical or imaginal cosmology associated with it, some kind of praxis of transformation. But they divide it into a, a kind of optimistic and pessimistic current, not unlike this question about uh, uh, Christianity in the 19th century and the, and the end times. And the pessimistic current is the one that we more think about as being Gnostic, that we think about in terms of the matrix, where we are, are sparks of the true light locked in a prison of a delusion that is ruled by archons, by lowered sort of political demons, and that if we're lucky, we can wake up, but the waking up is this sh shocking, shattering um, alienation from our conventional experience, including the experience of the body, the experience of the natural world. And all of that is seen as just kind of like hill, hills the, of the skeletons of demons. And we're trying to just escape and get it. It's like the ultimate escapism. And a lot of contemporary 
you know, conspiracy theory can be traced to these ideas. Like one particular example that's really great is that the Gnostics in the ancient worlds, I mean, not all of them, but some of some of them had a, uh, a view of the the, the the Garden of Eden story. Everybody knew the Garden of Eden story. You know, some of these guys were Jews. If they're Christians, then they know the story because we, they've adopted it. So everybody knows the guard, the standard Garden of Eden story. But some of these Gnostics would come in and go, hey, hey, no, no, no. Yeah, the, the story's true, but you, you, you got to read it right. The serpent is actually God. And God is Jehovah is the demiurge. He's a lower being. So actually, Adam and Eve are trapped in this false world of Eden. And it's the serpent who gives them the knowledge of good and evil, the gnosis of good and evil. And this allows them a chance at heaven. And that's part of the story. Now, one of the funny things, you look at that and you go, oh, that's just like a conspiracy theory reading of like, no, it's actually the inverse. Yeah. The story we know is the false except, story. Except it's, except it's in the Nag Hammadi scrolls and not some whack nut on fortune. Right. And so, right? so that's part of the spirit of this pessimistic gnosis is that kind of, is that kind of reading. But there's also what some call a current of optimistic gnosis, which is more associated with hermeticism, with mm -hmm. early alchemy, with the uh, a sense of the transformative potentials of the body and the uh, the um, illuminative capacities of the things and objects in the world. So it's a much more body-centered, positive, you know, mm -hmm. what we'd almost kind of think of new age sort of approach. Uh, or, yeah. or an alchemical approach where the, the materials of the, of the world and of the body are, are there to be transformed, yes. to be yes. worked through and even celebrated. And well, so I, I must say, I, I, I had to, I had, I, I sort of, you know, if I was ever a part of it, I broke with it, with that cynical, this world is illusion version of Gnosticism when I had a son. And I'm like, I, I cannot, will not, choose not to subscribe to any philosophy that diminishes the miracle of this little boy here yeah. and now among me. You know, but the alchemical version, and you just, you just teed this up so beautifully because that story, right, of that, that alternate Genesis story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And in fact, at the moment, the, cl the classic moment, right, that, that tees us up for all of our original sin and suffering of the biting of the apple, and then Yahweh coming in and going, who permitted you to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, right? I mean, in the Gnostic gospels, then at that moment, Sophia pipes in from above and it says, and who made you son to Yahweh, right? So a total like feminine smackdown of mansplaining from Yahweh and <laughs> gives to humanity the gift of Anthropos, the gift of Gnostic initiatory knowledge and, and that. So, and, and I'd love to, this is just such a beautiful segue, which is, you know, as, as you well know, Elaine Pagels, the scholar of religion at Princeton, you know, wrote that National Book Award winning book back in the day, the Gnostic Gospels. Um, it was from her being on the team at Oxford translating the original Nag Hammadi scrolls, which is like straight out of Indiana Jones. Um, and in her most recent book, which I did not know this, she was a faculty brat at Stanford. She grew up in Palo Alto in the 50s and early 60s. And in high school, she ran around with good old Jerry Garcia. So, so let's, let's, we, we, we've explored the current shit show. Um, and you alluded to the fact that that Gnostic tradition for, through the 17th through the 20th centuries kind of led us to the doorstep of the beats 
and then the hippies, and now we've kind of got this transitional segue in the both, you know, life and scholarship of Pagels, dumping us onto the doorstep of like 1961-62 Palo Alto, and the and a revival of experiential, Amer uniquely American experiential spirituality, fueled, ironically, by the CIA and MKUltra and and uh, Sandoz finest so so let's go down or not path. so ironically as many of our contemporary conspiracy theorists will say but we'll we'll leave those those stories aside for for uh for a moment well arguably you know earlier you talked about what what is the third great awakening and some people you know again you know no one's really pegged it entirely but uh, you know a number of folks and i think there's a good case to be made for it that really the late 60s, but particularly the 1970s, when the stuff from the 60s spread throughout the culture is kind of an example of that. When everybody had a mm -hmm. spiritual practice, everybody was had some weird diet, everybody was interest, interested in astrology. And all of that comes out of this earlier, more bohemian explosion. And, and we have to see that the that Bohemian, even though it was very small, the, the beats early on or what's going on in Palo Alto in the early 60s, well before, years and years before the summer of love, that even if it looks sort of even sometimes kind of nihilistic or just hip or, you know, poetry and jazz, that in a lot of ways it was a religious response to the enemy of the 1950s, both the mainstream, um, both mainstream America, but also the specter of the bomb, also the sort of spread of existentialism, the sense that life is me utterly meaningless, the sort of in inability for intellectuals to come up with anything better to do than to, you know, become a Marxist, which also doesn't look so pretty by that point, once we find out more what Stalin's been up to. So it's really a time of, of, of real confusion uh, uh, that felt quite apocalyptic, I think, to many of the people who were participating in it. And the route of experience, whether that's um, hedonistic experience with sexuality or with drugs, but also with religion and, and the turn towards meditation and the turn towards experiential paths within religion, those all kind of commingled to set up what this third countercultural Great Awakening um, would be. And uh, and so I think that that's, you know, in that sense, it's actually very much in line with these earlier things that we've been we, we've been talking about, although there, it tends to to not congeal into the older kinds of orthodoxies. Maybe there's new kinds of orthodoxies. And now what it's led to in many ways is the, the kind of orthodoxy that it's that has come out of all of those wonders and all that. And I, you know, I could spend all day talking about how cool things were in the 1960s and 1970s, but what do we get, what do we, what are we left with today? I think we're left with a couple of different things. Uh, one of the major things that we have to acknowledge is the way that it's gone into maintaining just a certain kind of narcissistic consumer capitalism. Earlier you talked about the kind of narcissism in America and that's the dark side. If the, I mean, the gnosis itself is already kind of light and dark because it can go real south. But as it just kind of peters out into something banal, it's this narcissism. It's this belief in the self and taking care of the self that I know, that not to humble me. It's, it's about my expression. It's about my self-realization. All of these things, which can be seen as very positive, are also qu quickly and easily melted down into a kind of narcissistic self-help bubble. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and we really see that today. And that's part of the legacy of this kind of countercultural current. But there's also things that I think 
you know, provide at least the the rocket fuel for the kind of transformation or kind of opening or even kind of confusion that then allows a transition to some larger, larger view. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it's it's just as compromised as everything else at this point. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, and you just skipped over all the fun stuff. So I feel like we've been doing the heavy lifting of like long ago, dusty old shit that maybe people haven't heard of or don't care it's, care about. And we've been we've been dealing with the grinding gears and sufferfest that is our world all day, every day, right now. Um, but that '60s and '70s. I mean, I, I want to go back to this because if we if we you know we started with Bloom, and we started with this idea that there is this hidden Gnostic American tradition. And then in some respects, we've forgotten that we know, that we know how to remember. And, you know, we go back to the 60s, we go back to Palo Alto, we see Ken Kesey famously smuggling, um, you know, government LSD out of, the, out of the VA hospital. We see the origins of the, the warlocks and the Mother, McKee, Mother McKee's uptown jug champions and Jerry Garcia and a handful of freaks and misfits getting together and becoming the house band for these for the acid tests, right? And if anybody hasn't read Tom Wolfe's book, Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, it's one of the good ones um, on, on that field, although Kesey hated it. Um, and there is to me something that is wildly mystic, Gnostic, Christic in all of those experiences. And whether it's, you know, you see it in Kesey's One Fill of the Cuckoo's Nest with Randall McMurphy as very much, I mean, an explicit Christ figure. You know, they literally, I mean, he's got lines and they're like, and the 12 of them went to the sea, you know, and like all those kind of things. And he's, you know, he's got his electroconvulsive shock and he says, put on the crown of thorns. I mean, this, the symbolism is, you know, repeat and unavoidable. And then he ends up living a version of that himself as he's hounded out of the country, becomes a fugitive down in Mexico, you know, writes a poem called The Tarnished Galahad of his own mystic Christic persecution. Um, that's in contrast to like, you know, Ram Dass and Tim Leary who are, you know, in, in Stony Brook um, in, in New York and they're doing the pious oriental mysticism thing of, you know, the Tibetan Book of the Dead and sitting and chanting. And meanwhile, Kesey and the pranksters and the dead are like, fuck it, let's be American superheroes. Let's swirl down tons of acid and let's take on alter egos, like personas that we haven't, you know, like the, the notion, yeah, alt, alternate mythic American personas, and let's go do that and see what we can do, see how big we can be. So so to me, that that has been a fascinating thing. And then, and then as that all was just a, you know, wild ass, untethered carnival in the early to mid 60s it starts coalescing into a technique of ecstasy to sort of use Eliade's kind of phrase and in the Grateful Dead concert right and in and embodied in Garcia who as you say you said it about Bloom right and, and we're wondering again he you know Garcia's melancholy romanticism his selection of tunes, his bringing in the American Gothic folk tradition, always dark, morbid stories, you know, of sisters murdering each other or lovers stabbing each other, Romeo Juliet style of battles against oppressive forces of the law of down in your luck card games, the tricksy thing. And I love, I love your scholarly use of that term, but like the tricksy, what me worry, who knows, can't quite pin this down, but we keep on keeping on kind of experience that initiated generations of, of Americans in what felt like probably the most Gnostic ecumenical service, psychedelic electric, you know, logos 
that I've I can think of. Well, that's a that's a that is a, a beautiful riff you have there. I, I can't <laughs> wait to read your book on this stuff. But yeah, it's absolutely core American religion, and I think the part of it that I that I would want to pull out in terms of in light of our question of what do we do um, <laughs> is that there is to pull out two very positive elements of that not that American Gnostic what the fuck religion and one is the body and yes. I think that one of the things that people are one of the reasons that people are are losing it these days or that these narratives and phantasmic scenarios and speculations and codes and links and is sort of eroding people is that they is that it's very difficult to be in your body and to be grounded in your actual physical experience meaning the people who you live with the place you live the, the weather the animals etc cetera, etc cetera, to really come from that place when we're being bombarded by information where everywhere you go is the mm -hmm. same you know apocalyptic nexus of news and me memeology and counter espionage psyops or whatever the hell is happening with all of these information streams and so though it sounds a bit banal that it it, fe it feels to me that one of the things that's a saving factor especially if you look at people who are like super blown out like someone like Robert Anton Wilson who's just like completely psychedelically open to all these conspiracies cosmic levels and extraterrestrials all this completely crazy stuff but if you actually follow how they were able to get through that and how yes. they kind of and, and sort of enabled a, a workable life in the midst of all that is that there's always this sense it's a kind of it reminds me of the old Taoists or Diogenes in, in the Greek philosophical tradition where there's something very physical in a in mm. a in a in a kind of almost profane, sloppy, goofy, exuberant way. There's this emphasis mm -hmm. on the body. And the dancing aspect of the Grateful Dead mm -hmm. is so key. And indeed, it's key to the whole 60s moment. You know, when people now think back, oh, the, the, the hate, they think about the bands. Jefferson Airplane was there. Oh, my God. Oh, mm -hmm. I could have seen Janis Joplin. But those bands were mostly excuses for the dance, yes. for something for people would yes. go in and completely, and if you see films of this stuff, they are completely dancing. I mean, it's oh, yeah. full on. Full freak out, and that, that's where Joe Campbell did that, right? Palace of Fine Arts, you know, where he sat down with the dead. And I think it was because Garcia had really loved Skeleton's Key to Finnegan's Wake. And, and, and they came in through that realm, but he, you know, Campbell, you know, famously went to one of their shows and he's like, I don't like rock and roll. I think it kind of sucks. It's boring and repetitive, but holy shit, what you guys are doing, seeing these people with upturned faces, shining and writhing with joy and ecstasy, um, that is a Dionysian ritual for the modern age. And it's fascinating that you mentioned the embodied nature. And, and by the way, just again, background, you know, the Grateful Dead pretty much live in either ridicule or reverence, and there's virtually no in-between. Um, but for folks that didn't necessarily understand, I mean, they had a, they conducted a very specific and relatively novel experiment, which was A, highly amplified music, and they poured all of the money from Owsley Stanley's LSD research into the wall of sound, like the highest fidelity surround sound of the time, um, so they could play minimal volume, no distortion, pristine clarity tones. So that's key, especially geared into a psychedelic experience, especially a communal one. They have a six string bass player who was a modern 
you know, classically trained and modern jazz ex ex improvisationalist, two drummers, two guitars, and they were willing to go down into the mud. They were willing to let it all come undone. And then in the collective group mind, group experience of communitas, then start attempting to play that. And they've even got that tune, right? They're a band beyond description like Jehovah's favorite choir, right? People joining hand in hand while the music played the band. And so, and that, that wasn't just a, a, a turn of phrase, right? It was the idea that they were simply expressing what was actually a co-created um, church moment. And, and your notion of the, I think you're exactly right, that the dance was everything. And that, that Dionysian ritual, and fascinatingly, I was just speaking with Amy Cuddy at Harvard, who uh, gave that famous TED talk on Wonder Woman power poses and all these kinds of things. And then in the middle of our conversation, she goes, she goes you, you do know that um, I'm a total deadhead, right? And I was like, what? No. Hey, why'd you tell me? And I think it was just because because of the writing of Stealing Fire. But she then opened up that the entire genesis of her work and her fascination with the psychosomatics of expressive embodiment generated from her experience at shows it was fascinating. So, so that's one side. So then we have like a collectivity that's based in the body that's ecstatic, but also has this kind of, you know, whatever family, like church, like collective, like possibility, like that's a, a powerful thing. I think that in some ways, modern EDM music is sort of doing that and festivals kind of do that. Although there's a certain, a sort of lack of the of the shared poesis, but perhaps that's partly a reflection of our more, you know, dismantled postmodern moment. But it carries on, you know, after the dead as well. But the other element I think that I want to pull out that you that you're talking about is the the not knowing in the gnosis. Yes, that inside the dead there is there, and, it, and you actually can go back to Kesey. So let's pick up a little bit from from Kesey. So yes, there is a distinct religious element to Kesey. Wolf himself noticed it. Wolf, who, by the way, also recognized and called the 70s spiritual explosion uh, the third great awakening before anybody else did. So he he's tuned in, even though he's a yeah. secular guy. He's yeah. super tuned into that American religion, and he saw it in Kesey. And of course, Kesey also had this connection with the Unitarians. And so there's, there is this kind of sense of the, the unchurched spirituality, but still with a Christian tinge that's going on. But how did Kesey manifest it? They manifested it, or the, or the pranksters, by not talking about it. Yes. By not talking about it. If those who know, do not say. Those who say, do not know. That line is from Lao Tzu, but it becomes, mm -hmm. in the hippie zone, the entree to a sort of hip spirituality. I mean, hip, not in, in the negative sense we use it now, but in, in, in what more... Yeah. Yes, that you, there's a knowingness about not knowing, because if you don't know, then you can never capture it, then it never congeals into a dogma, it doesn't become orthodoxy, it's impossible to become orthodoxy, but it also doesn't really give you a really concrete rule to live by. So yes. there's an existential quality to it that is profoundly important, and that's one another thing that people never remember when they look at the, the counterculture or the 60s explosion and try to understand what was happening is that the dominant philosophical psychological mind frame out of which that comes and this is totally true for the beatniks mm -hmm. directly is existentialism which is like we don't know 
we're making but, 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 but a transcend but a transcendent existentialism not a galois smoking nihilistic frog after the war you know wishing they hadn't capitulated to the nazis existentialism yeah it's it's right. both a, a resp it's both a carry over and a rejoinder of that moment, which is usually how these things move anyway. They, they are partly in reaction. They're going to say, oh, the existentialists say there's no magic in the world. We're going to make magic right here. We're going to make magic with ritual, with drugs, with worshiping nature, with, with ecstatic dancing. But there is also the thread within that of that. We're making it up as we go along. Yeah, so I mean, like Kesey that, has that. He has that great line. He says, the answer is never the answer. Right. Once you think you've found it, you stop looking, you know, like plant a garden where strange fruits and mysteries bloom. So, yeah, yeah they, they, he, they, they were absolutely. He also has that great line about about LSD where he says, sometimes it is worse to take it as a sacrament. Meaning <laughs> if you think that's what you're doing, that yeah. is part of not being there. So we see that with the dead, and that's part of the reason. I mean, there's a lot of things to say also about the dead in terms of the mythopoetics of America and bringing in this sort of old, weird American, this quality of tradition, uh, and and particularly its sort of darkness. Because I think part of the the answer is that there, there's just there's no answer. So you're not going to get that. You're not going to get the gnosis that knows. You're going to get a, a evanescent community or an evanescent sense of some kind of mythopoetic spilling through history that now involves you, but you don't walk out with some kind of system to follow. And one of the things that is most pernicious about conspiracy theory or most conspiracism, which is, I think, a, in some ways a better way to think about it because it takes it away from the theory or narrative and puts it more into the mind frame. Hmm. One of the great errors is that they always literalize. They always know. I mean, it's absurd. You have all of you have a room <laughs> yeah. full of QAnon people and they each have a different story, but they all know that they know and they all know that they're all right. It doesn't yes. make any there, sense. There, there is no fervor like the newly converted. Yeah. And it doesn't make any <laughs> sense because at the core of it is this, I know, I know. And I think the great, um, one of the great offerings and it's a bit of a poison fruit because it can go south. And we can talk a little bit about that in terms of the dead in a moment. But one of the great offerings of what I think of as genuine psychedelic spirituality is that it doesn't know. Yes. That there's a mystery that you cannot wrap your head around. And you live in relationship to that mystery that's always going to swallow up your thoughts and ideas and narratives and speculations and symbols. And yeah, we still need those. We're still going to play with them. We're still going to make meaning out of them. But there's this fundamental respect for just what the fuck. And yes, that's yes. a profoundly humbling thing that when you lose, that's when you get this kind of obsessive, didactic, dull, uh, uh, paranoid kinds of attachments to the stories that so many people fall into now. So that there are two, what I'm feeling is like rich currents right here in this conversation. And I'd love to see if we can braid them together and stick the landing. Okay. So, so, um, I mean, a just, um, massively enjoying, uh, getting to explore this with you. And, and I, you know, it feels like this could be an afternoon and several bottles of wine. Um, but one is you made the, 
you made the the illusion that current EDM or electronic dance music is is a continuation of that. And and sonically, I agree. The ultra high fidelity sound systems and speakers, the otherworldly squitches and wiggles and wobbles. It's it's like an acoustic water pick for your soul. You know, you're not listening to the music so so much as you're standing in front of the sound waves. Um, particularly, you know, with any kind of augmented consciousness. But you, you mentioned the, the mythopoetics, and I think that there is something utterly unique and important as far as their place in the lineage, um, where I, I would say, I would argue there are no poetics to the ed current EDM, even Temple Step and any of the kind of nominally more sort of sacred sounds that come out of the Bernie Main West Coast scene and that kind of, you know, temple bass and that kind of stuff, because there aren't any lyrics. Or if there are lyrics, they're subpar, or they're just sampled mashups. And you see the subsequent jam bands like Fish or the String Cheese Incident and things like that. And generally, their lyrics are abysmal. They, their their mus musicality is often awesome, but their lyricism doesn't hold a fucking candle to what the dead offered via both Robert Hunter and Garcia's pairing, who, you know, famously, I think Garcia said to Hunter, like, don't write me a line. I'm not willing to sing a thousand times. So there was a, an aversion to the knowing, to your point. There was an aversion to pat answers, to trite outcomes, even their most popular, famous campfire tune of all, Ripple. Ripple, yeah. No, right? It's, it's it is, a, is a, Ripple, a, is a, It is, it is. I mean, I don't care if I sound sentimental. It, it is it is as clean a testament to the vagaries and mysteries of life. And the final line is, if I knew the way, if, right, I would, I would take you home. And, and so my, my, my sense is, is that there is, you know, within the tradition, and I remember my first dead show back in college, hearing going down the road feeling bad right and it being a second set bond burner and you know and the first sets were typically melancholy americana sometimes they were acoustic they were card games and cowboys and trains and robberies and jail time and down on your luck and it was literally the experience of being american and it not always working out and then you know intermission <laughs> space and drums way out weirdness and then somehow out of all that would come together those second set anthems. And I remember that song, and for the first time in my 18-year-old life, like I had an out-of-body experience of like hooting and hollering, which for an uptight British kid simply was never done. And I literally was like, oh, who did that? And I looked around, and there was no one around me. I was like, holy shit, did that just come out of my mouth? Like pure, unrestrained, unironic joy? And, and I came home listening to that song, and my dad, Finished the verses. He, I was playing it on a bootleg tape, and he's and he and he's like, you know, go and wear the climb. It's just like I'm like, wait, how do you know this song? How does my dad know the dead? And he had been in the folk scene in London, picking banjo with Pete Seeger's sister Peggy. And he, I even I even have that banjo still. He gave it to me that was hers. And so I was like, holy shit, these guys weren't just making up their own stuff. They were resurrecting and connecting an entire generation to what, you know, for lack of a better term, feels like the Arcana Americana. This, you know, the gospel blues folk jazz tradition that, that comes out of slavery, that comes out of immigration, that comes out, and it's, and it's all the same, right? I mean, Stanley Crouch talks about it, Albert Murray talks about it, the blues yeah. idiom, Cornell West talks about it. It's like, that's not, ha you know, having hope's not enough. You gotta be hope. You know, that's the blues, yeah. that's Nina Simone, right? Yeah. Like, like that, that's the Mississippi goddamn. You know, before the worms get your body. And that sort of 
those sort of redemption songs and that antinomian agnostic Gnosticism, yeah. right? Like we've had, we've been touched by the light, but who the fuck knows? Feels yeah. profoundly, profoundly and powerfully American and, and our redemption songs. Like, I feel like if where we are right now is, is we're, we're, at a, we're rudderless for a scripture that unites us. And, and, and as, as is often the case, it feels like the answers are in our texts. And that our Arcana, American, I mean, I mean, there's been the Church of Beyonce, you know, at, at, in that Catholic church, in that cathedral in San Francisco. They've been getting together and singing, I'm a survivor, Beyonce anthems. And it's been bringing LGBTQ folks, women and, women and people of color together, all in a Catholic cathedral. Right, singing part of this tradition, singing that I've been down so goddamn long, it looks like up to me. And so, just just to you know, a, a loving hat tip and shout out to our our tradition, like all of ours, you know, like forged in suffering and forged in confusion, and we're all we've all been strangers in a strange land, you know, and that that somehow in the testifying of the being dropped to our knees but rising up singing you know like that feels like our shared legacy and if we can dust that shit off and and sh and, and and reanoint and reacquaint in a sort of groove and reconciliation committee you know like sweat our prayers that there's something there yeah i i can i can totally uh i can totally vibe with that i mean for me that that current of history is 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 really really important it's a it's an orienting mythopoetic uh, echo chamber of yeah. of tales that are only one step away from the more hardcore historical stories you want to tell about you know racism and subjugation and all of the stuff it's all there too it's not so it's not a panacea and yet there there's this kind of these currents in it this this these um, opportunities for encounter and for uh, affirmation in the midst of suffering and acknowledgement of suffering. It's so far away from the kind of the pop consumer world of happy, fluffy pastel, yeah. you know, self, you know, all, and it, it comes back to suffering. And that's one more thing I guess I yes, would say about, it does. about the dead um, is the dead. And that if you're paying attention, and I, I've, I've, I've laid this line on a few deadheads and they didn't really know what I was talking about. So it's like, I'm, there's clearly a way to be just a more superficial hedonistic deadhead and that's fine. But I'm like, if you're really paying attention, then you know that the reason you don't know is not just that because the, the light is unclear or because you didn't get the full download or whatever the other kinds of reasons you might say. The reason you don't know is because you're going to die. And nobody is going to wrap their heads around death. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't conceive of your own death. You don't know what it means. Any religious person who tells you, well, this has what happens when you die. When you die, you go into this other. No. Well, how do you know? You don't know. <laughs> nobody knows. So the nobody knows around death is a very stern liberator. It liberates you from bullshit. It liberates you from the need or belief that you can ultimately know. Mm -hmm. And it also brings you back to the collective celebration of here we are, you know, on this darkling plane. And rather than fighting like confused armies, let's dance. Yes. You know? 
Yes, it's that oh, that Alice Walker line of like hard times call for furious dancing. You know, it's you so know, and, I, and so I, I wonder. I mean, I know we're kind of going on here. We this is a nice place to end, but but just to think about, you know, what, how like how contemporary festival culture is kind of there, and then kind of not at all. I dude, I think it's I literally think it's the the absence of the arcana. I, th I think that that is something that the dead carried and, and other folks too do do too. I mean, Dolly Parton, you know, like, like, like it, it's the grand old Opry. It, it is Beyonce. It's Lady Gaga. Like it shows up. And when it shows up, you feel it. And, and, yeah. and when there's asymmetrical, yes, from the community, from the culture uh, around it, it almost always includes that Christic element of of a redemption song it's the first is the testifying to the broke openness let's not skip that part otherwise it's just bubblegum summertime mm -hmm. pop you know but it, it's out of the mud out out comes the lotus and and i feel like there's something so uniquely and powerfully american about it that is, that is no longer um unique it, it is the gift to the world. It is, it is the, you know, we've always been that place where people project their hopes. We've always been the tabula rasa. And as a result, and some flukes of history, we've also, we've also been the purveyors of pop culture from Hollywood studios all the way to Silicon Valley and Facebook and Instagram, you know, so we've, so, but that notion that our, the embrace of grief leads to redemption feels profound and, and, and we are, we were nominally where we are out of time but I would there's the other the other thread that I just would love to hear from you on is the idea of that antinomian agnosticism we see it in Kesey we see it in Garcia and for me one of the most you know and effectively what it is I mean you can make a case that what we're seeing is you know and this this plays out in the occult history but is basically the challenging of high magic in the same way that we would the challenging of orthodox religion happened right mm -hmm. so in the same way that the second great awakening is a challenge to the catholic and protestant churches in favor of something more direct immediate and experiential and the way you said that kesey said sometimes the worst thing you can do is take lsd as a sacrament aka high magic you know smells and bells and rituals and this and that the evolution and the emergence of chaos magic Right, the idea of like dispense with all the high churchy elements and let's get the thing done. Um, talk to me about Robert Anton Wilson, discordianism, chaos magic, and his beautifully agnostic notion of reality tunnels. Okay, yeah, that's a way to t to to kind of bring that that thread in um, yeah. in a in a strong way uh, that. You know, going back to another example of one of these like beatnik proto religions that have these same kinds of features that we've, we've been talking about is discordianism, another uh, West Coast uh, construction going all the way back to the late 1950s. And, it, and we got to remember that we're talking about this, a couple, you know, a handful of people through well through the 60s. So it's not even there's no reason you should know about it unless you're, yeah. uh, you know, a fan of Robert Anton Wilson or read the Illuminatus. But what's really key about this re religion, which also or uh, kind of inspires chaos magic down the road, is that it's it's very it's looks to be purely satirical, like it's just yeah. making fun of everything, like an elaborate postmodern Taoist joke. 
a prank. Exactly, an elaborate postmodern Zen Taoist joke with with uh, you know scat scatological references and you know bad puns and the whole thing. And yet, on another level, it was it was serious. And that blend of serious, not serious is incredibly key because it's already, even at this early stage, a solution to the kind of nihilistic irony of postmodernism. Even though in some ways it's very postmodern, it's already saying, look, the, the, if you're just ironic, if you're just nihilistic, you're not getting the picture. You don't see what's actually going on here, which is something beyond that that can't quite be named, but can be played with. And so they play this kind of game. Robert Anton Wilson brings Discordianism into this great work of Illuminatus, which also elaborates a huge amount of the kind of goofy ideas around conspiracy theory, the Illuminati. In, in many ways, the Illuminatus is kind of the origin of a lot of threads that are now manifest as much more you know, banal and uh, claustrophobic kinds of conspiracy culture because Wilson was one of the first people who said, hey, this stuff's kind of fun. In fact, it, it has something to do with magic, too. It's, it's actually kind of interesting, and except that he was always maintaining that kind of agnostic, open-ended, Taoist chaos attitude towards, towards the mysteries. And indeed, that's what he kind of communicates uh, in his books. I mean, in some ways, he's sort of the philosopher of that current of playful agnosticism that we're talking about, except for him, it wasn't just a dodge. And that's an important thing. Again, you think about it, oh, it's just postmodernism. Oh, I don't believe anything. You can't get me. No, no, no. It's a solution to the problem that has now inflicted itself on hundreds, tens of hundreds, thousands, who knows? How many people have been sucked into QAnon uh, and, you know, related ideas, but you can just talk about QAnon, particularly from the psychedelic yoga, Burning Man, New Age, alternative medicine kind of world. Why? It's because they didn't get that message. Yeah. They're holding they abandoned to rigor. answer. Yeah. And that ironic agnosticism is the balm for that kind of belief, which ends up being a trap. Because even if it's sort of true or allegorically true or true enough to keep thinking about and not, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, demonize it the way that mainstream rationalists do, but I'm saying that there's a fundamental spiritual error, a kind of, um, uh, a kind of, uh, uh, an, a warped or failed initiation at the heart of that, which is that it doesn't go through with its skepticism about the narratives we hear about reality. It disbelieves the surface story and then simply clamps on to a vast collective understory with the same kind of whatever, cow-like idiocy that you once had when you just believed everything that the mainstream was telling you. Instead yeah. of going, well, why should I believe this weird guy who's doing a YouTube video from Wales about the flat, like, why do I believe yeah. him? Instead well, that, of the that's the old guy. so that's that's Plato's you, thing, you right? Break through that, and it's even scarier. But it turns out, especially if you're paying attention to your body, if you're being tuned into the actual world you have, the actual relationships you have with animals, with the tree on your block, with your kids, with the people upstairs, that somehow you can actually play this game, even though you know you don't know. And so that's really the line that that I like to bring forward from that whole kind of Robert Anton Wilson way is that it's actually a, a medicine 
for people who are in this kind of you know, uh, halfway initiation into the mythopoetics of reality, including the tremendous darkness that's in reality, all the demons we dance with and, and the demons that are part of that Grateful Dead current of death and failure and scary spaces and risking hell. What does it mean to risk hell? You know, yeah. it means to no longer know that what you're doing is the good. That's scary. It could go wrong. It could go south. But if we can't make that risk, you can see people just wind up with just claustrophobic forms of darkness and fear uh, within this this kind of you know conspiratorial landscape. So yeah. that's sort of one of my like you know platforms that are planks mm-hmm. that I stand on is this kind of yeah. healing power of of a, a, of agnosticism at, at this point, and it's scary. But I don't really see yeah. any other way out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels to me that that agnostic Gnosticism, you know, a sort of a Promethean Christology, um, is, is the American legacy. It, it's there, it's in our text, and again, you know, it is, it, is, it is the Arcana American. It is the sacred secret, hermetic living tradition, as, as Bloom calls it, of Anthropos. And Anthropos being the, mis- or Adam Cadman, right? I mean, you know, what, what is known in the hermetic traditions of the fully expressed human. Which right. is and that's, the body that's of Christ. That, right. And that's that positive gnosis current. That's that alchemical, yeah. embodied, dancing, materialized. It's speaking through the world that the, you know, why why the hell do people spend so much time breaking down the secret iconography online or in what or t- Trump's tweets or the symbolism of some ad campaign when you're fucking surrounded by nature which is nothing on that level but a world of signs, embodied signs, ancient signs, signs that are ripe for speaking, for whispering, for coming alive with with meaning. And the inability of people to recognize that if you're going to give, you know, whatever, the the some hip-hop guy doing this, like, a lot of meaning, why aren't you giving that meaning to everything around you? What makes you think that the dark manipulative symbolism of advertising is the only power at hand that's a complete collapse of the imagination and and if you want and and to see it in those terms of that full body that is also in nature is also in relation to other bodies and to animals and to wind and all of that other stuff you got to include that and once you include that then the balance starts coming through i'm not saying that there isn't demonic psyops going in there is absolutely demonic if you want to think about it that way manipulative dark controlling you know psychopathological etc etc from multiple corners i'm not denying that it's just that the way in which people try to navigate it i think is actually hurting themselves they're falling into their own trip trap (laughs) trip trap that's nice yeah the signs and portents are everywhere and we are surrounded by omens of millennia. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Jamie Wheel and produced by Abby Arda. The podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, homeopathic supplement, 
and any other questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any health professional affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of our guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibilities for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guests, qualifications, or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.